Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with David Rapson, a Chancellor's Leadership Professor in the Department of Economics and Co-Director of the Davis Energy Economics Program at UC Davis. Beyond his academic roles, Professor Rapson also serves as an economic policy advisor and senior research economist for the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. In this episode, we talk about the economics of electrification, focusing primarily on electric vehicles and grid infrastructure. Additionally, we explore why all students should study economics and the role of the Federal Reserve. We hope you enjoy. Later in this conversation, we're probably going to be talking a little bit about my role at the Fed. And so I just have to say, you know, none of what I'm going to say here today is uh, the view of the Fed or the Federal Reserve System. You know, all these views are, are, are just my own. But yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Professor David Rapson. Thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in economics? And specifically, what got you interested in energy? Wow. I mean, I could go so many directions with that. But, um, you know, back when I was an undergrad, I thought I was going to be a chemist and had this really inspiring chemistry teacher in high school. And I got to Dartmouth and ended up in these classes with, you know, they were all pre-meds and something like, 70% of our incoming class had declared that they were pre-med. And so one of the main purposes of these classes was to weed them out. Mm-hmm. So it was just brutal. Like I really enjoyed this subject, but it was a crucible where it just seemed like all they were trying to do was make it super difficult for no reason. So I didn't really enjoy my chemistry class. So I decided to graze the pastures of other disciplines. And there was this guy who lived down the hall from me who was um, you know, a, a really, uh, you know, sharp intellectual mind. And, and he was super into economics. He said, Hey Dave, you should, uh, you should take an econ class. And I'd never even actually like heard of that. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't an econ class in my high school. So I took it and I, immediately I was, I was completely into it. Um, it just seemed like the, the combination of science and human behavior, both of which I, you know, I'm really curious about. And so that was the start of it, yeah. And I, uh, I worked in business for a little bit after after undergrad and decided I wanted a little bit more control over my schedule. And also I was in consulting and I found that, you know, we had, you know, six weeks to answer these questions that were impossible to answer in six weeks. And then we would go to the boardroom and stand up in front of these, you know, C-level executives and tell them that we knew the answer when we really didn't. <laughs> and I, I found that, you know, it just didn't jive with uh, with the kind of level of intellectual integrity that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So for both those reasons, I went back to grad school. Um, I hadn't taken enough math in in college, which if you want to do um, if you want to do a PhD in economics, you really have to have a strong math background. So I took some math classes. I applied to grad school. I, I got uh, I got rejected from every PhD program the the first time, and so I went and did a master's uh, at in Canada at Queen's University. Mm-hmm. And that was like math boot camp for me. It was, it was awesome uh, and a great time. And then, I, yeah, then I was accepted to a bunch of programs the next year. I went to Boston University. And yeah, how did I end up in California? Well, when you go on the job market in economics, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. You apply to literally over 100 jobs. There's just a central de- you know, repository of job postings. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty low cost to apply to a bunch of them. And there's a conference then uh, at the beginning of every year where all the employers and all of the, uh, the job seekers just go, you know, they descend on some city. And so, I, you know, in, in a weekend, I had like 30 interviews or something like wow. that. And then they fly you out if they're, if they're interested after that. And so, yeah, you know, hundred and some odd applications paired down to, you know, three job offers. And UC Davis was, uh, was at the top of that list pretty clearly for me. Um, you know, this was 15 years ago. I was, uh, I was coming out of grad school at a time when not many people did energy economics. And I was, I went into this because of uh, an interest in climate change. I was reading a lot about, um, you know, about the effect of greenhouse gas emissions on, on the climate. And it just struck me as, you know, a first order important topic. And when I looked at the methods that I was learning in the PhD and whether, you know, the extent to which they'd been applied to energy 
problems. They, they just hadn't been. And so I started doing that. And, uh, and yeah, so when I, when I hit the market, there were people who were, who were interested in hiring someone like me and not many people like me. So I, I really, you know, was very lucky to end at a place like UC Davis. And so I've been here 15 years now and, and love it. It's a really interesting path. Um, comparing your time at consulting to now as a researcher, do you ever feel a similar sentiment of only being able to like suggest policy options or suggest management decisions versus actually seeing some of your ideas come to fruition? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, the, what actually ends up getting implemented when it comes to climate and energy policy is it's largely going through either a regulatory process that's somewhat political or the political process, which is entirely political. And, you know, they only care so much about what, <laughs> what economists and experts have to say. Um, you know, I don't think I felt even in consulting though, that, that, uh, you know, I was seeing what we were suggesting actually happening. We were a little bit, you know, these, I'm sure that we were an input to a larger process in these corporations, and uh, but it wasn't one that I was I was really tracking. I was super junior at the time, and mm -hmm. I was, you know, uh, doing spreadsheets and making models like uh, you know, morning to night. Uh, so I wasn't really looking at that at that. But no, what's more important to me? I mean, it is. I care about the policies that are implemented and I would love to see better policies be implemented. And I think we're going to get to that later in this discussion, but uh, really what's, what, what's important to me is the ability to think about these very difficult issues uh, and say what I actually think about them without any, you know, repercussions. I think we need independent voices um, talking outside of the political process uh, to offer opinions that maybe, you know, maybe they're not always the most popular opinions, but, um, but they're important. You, ne you need to have a lot of viewpoint diversity. And that's what I appreciate most about academia. You actually think that like, academia has the ability to offer that wide range? Because I think there's a narrative forming nowadays where academia doesn't have a huge diversity of thought and like we're kind of siloing more and more. So would you counter that idea? I would you counter that idea? No, I think that's absolutely true. It's a very concerning trend. Um, I'm actually deeply concerned about that from a societal perspective. But, um, you know, from my own perspective, I've car carved out a niche mm -hmm. as a, you know, non-conforming uh, voice in the energy transition policy space. And, you know, it's been very exciting for me. And I think that a lot of people... Um, you know, they, they might not necessarily agree with me, but I have a platform to, um, you know, to express those views. And, and, you know, these are things that, you know, I've thought about as, you know, more than 99% of people <laughs> out there. And so, uh, you know, I have quite a bit of conviction about them. And, and yeah, academia is the platform for that. You know, if I was um, trying to make my living as a, you know, public intellectual on Twitter or something like that, I think I'd have to modulate my views. And, and you, you actually see this a lot on Twitter where people gravitate to one pole or the other. And, you know, I don't really identify with any with the extremes on, on either side of, of at least the debates that I'm engaging in. And, and yeah, academia is, you know, the, the, the place for that. But yeah, when you look at the political composition of the faculty and the students, um, faculty in particular, I mean, it, it skews dramatically um, democratic here. And, you know, I think that's a problem. I think it, it, it's, it, it's a credibility issue for, for, for universities in general that most, uh, most of the kind of narratives and the way problems are framed coming out of academia seem to conform a lot to a particular view, a particular lens of the world. And I think that leaves, you know, if you're a Republican, uh, you know, living in Arizona and you're looking at stuff that's coming out of UC Davis on, you know, any number of issues, you might just think that this is from another planet. And, um, you know, I think, I think that's a problem. I think we need to have uh, more viewpoint diversity uh, on on campuses, we yeah we should hire more conservatives. I mean, I really think you know I'm I'm a uh, Canadian you know environmentalist <laughs> Buddhist <laughs> you know I I am in favor of universal health care. Like I'm a pretty much center left person, and yeah, I feel like we don't have enough uh, conservative viewpoints on campus these days. Yeah, 
Do you have any advice on how we could go about getting that? Oh boy, that's uh, yeah. I have some thoughts, but probably I would want to think about them more yeah. carefully yeah. Uh, yeah. before talking about them because honestly, it's um, you know the types of things that. Like, let's just say that we're not setting up our universities to promote that type of diversity. Yeah, definitely some food for thought. Now, kind of getting back into what you research specifically. Before we jump into the energy side of it, what is economics as a whole? And especially, and more so, why should people care about it and study it? Yeah, I mean, economics is just common sense. It, honestly, it's <laughs> not like... You know, we have all these fancy words and we have this language that we've made all around. But honestly, it just boils down to common sense. But, you know, I'm teaching Econ 1A right now, which is the introductory micro class to undergrads here. And, and I've taught this for several years. And when they, you know, when I introduce it to them, I, it's, it's the, I say that it's the study of scarcity and how to allocate scarce resources. But really, you know, when it comes down to it, how do we make decisions in life that are making the most of the resources that we have? How do we think about the first and second order incentive effects that we might be putting into motion when we implement certain policies? And it doesn't take, you know, you don't have to look very far to see how governments are getting it wrong left and right in terms of the incentives that they're setting. Um, and when I say getting it wrong, I'm talking about these governments, they have particular goals in mind and they're setting policies that create incentives that undermine the achievement of those goals. So, you know, this is a pretty direct, you know, they're not thinking things through. Economics teaches you how to think things through in the ways that I think are relevant. And, it, you know, because of the power of, of, of what I just said there, um, the language of economics has really become uh, a language that is used at the highest echelons of power in the world. Uh, because all sorts of amazing things happen when you stimulate economic growth. And, you know, maybe we'll get to some of that. What do you think the best economic model is? I mean, I guess I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. I, I would maybe just zooming way out, people respond to incentives. And many of these incentives are, are monetary. And one of the limitations of economics is we don't easily incorporate non-monetary incentives, many of which are incredibly important as well. But in the realm of monetary incentives, you know, those are very powerful. They have, you know, persistent and wide reaching effects on, on people's behavior and therefore the way that society looks and, you know, implications for, for, for how we should be, um, you know, organizing, organizing ourselves. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the main the main thing that I, that, that people should understand. And, you know, when you think of like, let's take, for example, the wealth tax, like, I don't think there's anybody in the right minds that looks at the distribution of wealth in society and says, Hey, this is great. Like, this is the way we drew it up in the playbook. No, we've got an insane distribution of, of wealth where we've got, you know, 1% or 0.1% hoarding, you know, an enormous amount of the resources out there. And you've got people at the lower end of the, the spectrum, you know, who don't have enough. So, you know, I feel like today there's a sense that, well, we should just tear down the system because that is unjust. And, you know, I, a lot of people advocate for a wealth tax. And, you know, I would love to be able to implement a wealth tax. If we could wave our wand and, you know, make it possible to just tax, you know, 1% of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's wealth every year, um, then great. I would like, I would favor that. Uh, but when you think about it through the lens of incentives, this, it's really, really hard to implement that. Even if you could get the political will to do that, which would be difficult because of the influence of money in the system, if you were to uh, have a wealth tax, people would just move. Wealth is, you know, is mobile. People are mobile. And you actually saw this with Sweden in the second half of the 20th century. They had a wealth tax and they got rid of it because all the wealth was leaving their country. And so, yeah, thinking about the incentives and, and the constraints uh, of the world that we live in. And yeah, it's, we, you know, there are lots of difficult problems out there. And I think, you know, oftentimes, especially with the younger, gen your generation, I think is really like, uh, striving for perfection in the way that society looks. And, and man, society's messy. And we, we're in a world with trade-offs and, and, and economics just helps us think about those trade-offs. So, you know, I just talked about something that is unrelated to what I study, 
but you were asking about economics yeah. and you know i think thinking about incentives and trade-offs is central to what we do and you know basically in my career i've decided to deploy that technology to climate policy and energy policy where i think the trade-offs are profound because on the one hand we've got the most important energy inputs to our economy 80% of the primary inputs to the American economy are fossil fuels, 80%. And why is that? It's because fossil fuels are amazing in every way except that they pollute, right? They're ubiquitous, they're energy dense, they're cheap, they're transportable. I mean, it, they really are, are amazing in, in so many ways. And when you burn them, they emit greenhouse gases and other you know, pollutants that cause respiratory damages. And so when we think about, okay, so we want to reduce those pollution damages. How do we do that? Well, we, we want to reduce then the use of these fuels, but these fuels also provide incredible benefits to us. And so there's a lot of tricky trade-offs at, at play there and thinking that, oh, we're just going to get rid of those, you know, sure, that's a, a nice aspiration and maybe we're going to get there in 50 years, but you can't just wave a wand and get rid of these incredible energy inputs that have these characteristics that are not replicated by the alternatives, right? And I think we might we might get into, into some of that, but economics really has a lot to say about uh, the energy transition and environmental policy. And that's what I've, you know, dedicated my career to investigating. Yeah. And could you kind of go back into that of the research on the EVs in particular and that transition and how you know, what we're being told of, oh, we need to transition by 2035 in California, how that's not going to be a very easy thing to do unless we kind of take a look back and look at, okay, how are these comparing to the current, you know, oil-based gas vehicles? Yeah, so, so in the energy transition, one of the central pillars is that, is this vision of switching from fossil fuel-based electricity generation to renewables, uh, which aren't going to pollute, and at the same time, or maybe sequentially, switching from gasoline and diesel cars to electric cars that are powered from this green grid. And, you know, that's an incredible vision, because if you can do that, you now have a carbon-free transportation system. Now, of course, there are other aspects of the economy that aren't, you know, necessarily addressed by this electrification vision, but the electrification, you know, transition is what I think about most, so that's what I'm going to focus on here. And... Yeah, I mean, there, there are just so many trade-offs there. Um, you know, right now, um, right now it's more expensive to, uh, you know, the places that have been investing a lot in renewable electricity and that transition, their electricity prices are higher. Now, you know, part of that is an investment in driving the cost down for everybody else. Um, but still, you know, you look at Germany, you look at California and, uh, you know, Hawaii, and the, you see really high electricity prices. Um, so there, there is kind of a, a, at least an investment in the transition where you're going to be having more expensive energy. Um, there are reliability issues where the, the vision here is that um, wind and solar primarily are the renewables that are envisioned to fill the gap. Uh, when we get rid of fossil fuels, and those are intermittent. So, you know, they're, they're actually on, on the margin, they're, they're free. Once you have your solar panels or your wind turbine, it's basically free to produce energy through that, through that resource. Um, but it only happens when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. So, you know, that's not the way that our demand works. We demand energy whenever we need air conditioning or, you know, when we need to do a load of laundry or what, whatever it may be. And so we also need a way to store this energy. And that really is, is the, the most challenging aspect at this point. We don't have grid-scale storage uh, that's economically viable at this point. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, so you know, the, it's not just a cost issue, it's a services issue. Right? Are we getting the services that we need from, uh, from this kind of renewed electric grid? And then on the EV side of this transition, well, you know, the, I, I think some of these, some of these issues translate, like the, the cost of storing, uh, storing electricity and batteries is very high. So electric vehicles tend to be a lot more expensive than, uh, gasoline cars that, uh, that, that provide similar range, for example. Um, and when I say more expensive here, I'm talking about more expensive to society, because of course, if you subsidize an electric vehicle, 
then you can make it as cheap as you want, right? But yeah. that that money isn't coming from nowhere. That's coming from our tax dollars. And, you know, right now there's a, a massive debate raging on, you know, in D.C. about whether to raise the debt limit. You know, we, we do have resource constraints. So I don't, that was kind of a rambling answer, but there's so many aspects of the of the energy transition that are interesting and that that uh, that embody the types of trade-offs that that we study in economics. Yeah. Before we jump into electric vehicles specifically, can we touch a bit more on the electric grid as a whole? And I guess this will be a two-part question. First part being, do you think California is ready for a full electric electrification of, say, our transportation? And because part of what I'm thinking about here is we just passed the law to mandate everyone's going to be driving or all the new purchases will be electric vehicles. And then what this last heat wave, I think within the last year, they told people don't charge your Tesla because it's straining the grid too much. Will we be able to handle it? We're not ready to handle it now. And we're not, uh, well, first of all, there, there's still a lot of natural gas Mm -hmm. um, available when the sun, if you just look at, go, go to the, there's an app, the Kaiso, uh, the California Independent System Operator has an app that the people who run the grid, and they'll just show you at this very moment how much solar energy is being uh, being create, being generated, and you know what other uses are there, and you'll see that every day when the sun sets, there's a ramping up of natural gas because you're you're taking all of these resources off the solar resources are coming off the grid because you only get them when the sun is shining. And we need something to replace that. That's all. That's going to be gas, basically, mm-hmm. at this point. Um, you know, there's some batteries that are helping out, but those are very, you know, that's more, um, you know, short term, very short term. Uh, so, so we still use a lot of natural gas. And yeah, I mean, when will we get to, you know, I, I should say, though, at the same time, just the other day, well, almost every day when it's sunny and it's relatively cool outside in California, in the middle of the day, 100% of our electricity is coming from renewables. So there are, really? so we, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're at a point where, uh, where we are generating a lot of electricity from renewables. And that's an incredible advancement. I, th- I think that's really great. But it's, it's during the day. And, you know, we, we still have this uh, issue of how to smooth um, production over, over the, the different hours of the day. So, you know, I, I actually think that California is probably, I mean, California is way ahead of other places. We've mm-hmm. got great solar resources. You know, I come from a place that's cloudy right. most of the time. So, you know, we're not going to be powering the Nova Scotia electric grid with, with solar energy anytime soon. Um, and, you know, Cal- California has that great endowment. Um, and, you know, in Texas, there's a lot of wind. So it really depends on, on, on where you are. But I think we really do need uh, advancements in storage technology, which are either going to be batteries or maybe hydrogen uh, being generated with the excess renewables. Um, but we're not there yet. It's, n- it's not economical. And so, yeah, these visions of phasing out the gasoline car in favor of an electric car that's powered by, you know, solar in California, we're just, we're, we're just not not quite there. I, I think people, there's an appetite because people care so much about these issues to support very bold policies like that. Um, but, uh, you know, even when you talk to the people who are making these decisions, I don't think anyone thinks that we're going to be at 100% EVs by 2035. Like, uh, you know, that's that's just, uh, even even in the new, even in new sales, that, that would be you know, a, a dramatic reshaping of our economy and of the transportation sector. And with the storage technology, have you looked into like what methods might be best in terms of, right now we have a pretty centralized grid, but there was talks of having like individual home energy storage. Have you looked into that or whether a decentralized model would be better or worse or where that might lie? I mean, I haven't looked into it in my own research, but one thing that we've learned uh, time and time again when it comes to reliability of electricity is linking markets, economies of scale mm-hmm. are really important. So building transmission lines to connect different markets can increase the resilience of the entire grid because sometimes there might be, you know, a supplier demand shock, you know, maybe, um, 
you know, maybe a power plant goes out somewhere or like clouds, <laughs> you know, happen to appear over Didn't the Didn't this happen in Europe? Uh, where some of the countries who were way more focused on renewables had, they would sell their excess energy in the times where they were producing a lot and then buy it back when they couldn't produce the renewable energy? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And it happens here as well. I mean, California's, um, California is buying and selling a lot of energy across, you know, to, to neighboring states as well. We're part of a, a Western grid that that mm -hmm. is interconnected. And uh, and this this really, you know, it's, it's not just a reliability issue. It's an economic efficiency issue where, you know, maybe in the middle of the day, like I just described before, solar is really abundant in California and our wholesale electricity price is zero. And so if someone, you know, someone can buy our electricity very inexpensively at those hours uh, and later where, you know, maybe there's more thermal resources in Nevada, you know, when the sun goes down, maybe we're importing more. Uh, these, this type of trade is incredibly beneficial to both, both parties. And you see it here in the U.S., you see it in, uh, in Europe. I mean, this is the economies of scale uh, in electricity are, are very big. And so, yeah, there, there is a vision around microgrids. And I think that vision relies on very, very cheap batteries. Mm -hmm. um, because if you have very cheap batteries, then you, when there's a, a deficit in supply, you don't have to import it from somewhere else. You can just draw it from the batteries. Maybe we'll get there. Yeah. And I also noticed you didn't mention nuclear. Is that for any particular reason? No, I mean, nuclear, uh, you know, it's, okay, so a couple things about nuclear. It's a very good green replacement for coal, for baseload, because you can turn it up and down. There's like, you can think of it, can you get more energy from a nuclear plant when you need it? Yes. And that's exactly what we're, we're trying to remove, um, you know, the fossil fuel, uh, the fossil fuel component, which is really good at, at providing that service. So nuclear is very good at that. It happens to be extremely expensive, uh, mostly because of all the safety precautions that you need to build a safe nuclear plant. Um, but once you've built it, it's actually very cheap to produce the electricity from it. And so, you know, on the one hand, I can understand why there might be a economic reluctance to build more nuclear. Um, I think it's insane to be decommissioning nuclear that is safe and has already been built as they're doing in Germany, um, you know, because that's green electricity right there is going to help the, it's, it's going to help, uh, the transition to whatever it is that, that comes next. Um, and you know, nuclear has just gotten a really bad rap because, uh, people think about these very high profile meltdowns in, uh, you know, Fukushima and Chernobyl. But when you look at the actual deaths from nuclear, you know, accidents, they're very, very, very small. We kill way more people every year from burning coal, way like thousands of people every year from coal in the U.S., just from, you know, the sulfur dioxide and particulate emissions that lead to all these respiratory problems of people who are downwind from the plants. Um, you know, you add up everyone who's been killed over the history of nuclear power and it's probably fewer than 100 people. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's curious to me why particularly the environmental community has taken such a negative stance on nuclear um, because most of those people care a lot about climate change and nuclear energy is green. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't quite understand that. Um, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. Uh, but economically, building new plants is very expensive. So, yeah, it's, it's unclear we should be doing a lot of that. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that changes too with the advent of fusion looking like it's growing because I think that's going to become a lot more of a, a marketing thing than a technology thing when it does reach a point of fruition. But kind of tying back a little bit, could you just talk about how much of our electricity is generated from coal? So worldwide, we're at about 60% fossil fuels on the electric grid. In the U.S., it's also about 60%. It's about 40% uh, gas, natural gas, and 20% coal, with coal declining, um, you know, over the over recent years quite substantially. Uh, worldwide, it's it's the opposite: it's 40% coal, 20% natural gas, and lots of places are 
expanding their use of coal. China, even if you look at Europe in the last, uh, you know, after the, the Russian invasion, when natural gas became very scarce, you know, Germany turned to coal again. Um, so, yeah, there's still a lot of coal being burned in the world. Yeah. Is there a, a significant difference between the environmental impact of coal versus natural gas? Huge environmental difference. So there are two pollutants that we want to you know, separate out here. One is greenhouse gas emissions, which contribute to a global stock of greenhouse gas concentrations that lead to global warming. And the rough heuristic is that there are twice as many greenhouse gas emissions per unit of electricity generated in coal than there is in natural gas. But the second category of pollutants is even more important, actually, for if you just add up the, the damages to the economic damages, this other group is is uh, is really important, which is the local pollutants. These mm -hmm. are pollutants that if you're downstream from the plant, you know, when you're breathing in this air, it's going to lead to respiratory issues and, you know, take years off your life, etc. Um, those are virtually non-existent for gas plants. And for coal, those are extreme. Yeah. Is the best way to transition out of the use of coal to put in place more negative incentives? Okay, so there are kind of two big categories of, maybe three categories of policies that we've been implementing at, at, you know, in the U.S. to transition away from, from coal. Um, one is trying to put a price on carbon emissions. So in California and in New England, there are cap and trade systems where if you pollute, you need to have a permit and you buy that permit on a market and that makes it costly to, uh, to generate through coal relative to something that's cleaner. Um, another is through subsidies. So, you know, there are lots of subsidies for solar electricity, um, both on the rooftop and at larger scale. And the purpose of those uh, of those subsidies has, I think, always been to try to drive down the costs by by achieving scale and getting a lot of this resource built. Uh, we're going to learn about how to do it better. We're going to innovate and and have new technologies that are going to be cheaper in the future. So we're not going to have to subsidize it. I think that's the narrative that that uh, that there's been. And then there's just kind of command and control policies just saying, hey, you have to do this. So for example, in California now, if you build a new home, it has to have solar on the rooftop. And, you know, that those types of, uh, those types of policies, economists are, I would say uh, th those three groups of policies were in decreasing order of efficiency. You know, you want to make it, the best thing we can do is make it expensive to pollute because that creates all the right incentives. It, if you if you have a let's say carbon tax or a cap and trade that is transmitting incentives that reflect the actual costs on society of burning coal, then you're going to reduce the amount of coal you're burning optimally. That doesn't mean you're going to get to zero coal because maybe coal is still valuable, but you're going to reduce it substantially and maybe entirely. And with natural gas, you know that that's the same. Subsidizing alternative sources of energy doesn't do the same thing. Right there, you're, you're making it less expensive for a competing technology to be adopted. And that, that's good. To a certain extent, that's going to cause coal to be displaced or natural gas to be displaced by these new resources. But you're also going to be expanding the total amount of resources. This is just econ one, right? If you subsidize a good, you're going to get more of it. So if we're subsidizing energy, even if it's just green energy, you know, if what we want to do is reduce the amount of, of fossil fuels that are being burned, that's not going to be quite as effective as if we make it expensive to burn fossil fuels. Then you've got the command and control just saying, hey, you have to do this. You're not allowed to do that. The bans and the mandates, which seem to be increasingly in favor in, you know, in California and, and, and elsewhere. Those, I think we have to look at the costs and benefits of, of those more through the lens of, you know, what are the second order effects that these are going to cause? You know, what if we really do need fossil fuels on the grid in order for it to be uh, reliable? And I'm not saying we necessarily, I mean, right now we do, but, you know, in 10 years, who knows whether, whether we will need to. If we do need them and we ban them, 
then, you know, what does the world look like when we don't have reliable electricity, right? What are the, what are the costs to the economy and to our just lifestyles? And, and, um, you know, I, I, I think that those, those are going to be potentially very large for these bans and mandates. Uh, and and it's really hard to, to model that. It's hard to estimate what the effects will be. And I think there's generally a complacency out there. People want to get, you know, they want to get rid of coal. They want to get rid of fossil fuels. So when you hear, you know, Governor Newsom saying, we're going to ban this, or, you know, they, they feel good about that. But I think that's also because they don't necessarily understand all the benefits that we're getting from these resources. Yeah. And I also think that a direct ban or an all or a tax is a lot easier to understand. Like gas cars are bad, bad, bad gas cars versus you're gonna have to pay for the pollution you put out into this world. Go figure out how to allocate where you pollute is a much more nuanced and harder to put a tagline on. Yeah. I think, you know, I think this actually was in one of the things you mentioned in one of your emails, this, this kind of gets to it, you know, what responsibility do we have as individuals? And what we as individuals do doesn't make much difference. It can make us feel different about ourselves and whether we're good people or bad people. And, you know, we should care about that. But if we want to solve this problem of global climate change, you know, it's not going to happen through voluntary efforts of well-intentioned individuals in California. That's, you know, we need to be implementing policies that are going to set the right incentives. And if we don't do that, it doesn't matter how many well-intentioned people put solar on the roofs in California. Yeah. Now, can you take some of these ideas and use your work with electric vehicles as an example, thinking back to one of the things that we reviewed for this podcast of the sales dropping the second the subsidy for electric cars were lifted? Do you have other examples similar to that? Well, first, could you explain that example? And then some other ones about how different policies create different outcomes? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I, th I think what you're referring to there, um, you know, maybe this was from the debate that's on my website. I I'm not so. sure that we actually talked about this, okay. but, you know, in Georgia several years ago, they, they had uh, an electric vehicle purchase incentive and they got rid of it. And, you know, they were selling lots of EVs in Georgia before, you know, when the subsidy was in place and when they got rid of it, <laughs> it you know, sales in Georgia dropped. That That's all that's saying is, that, you know, when people go out there and they're scanning the landscape of cars to buy, right now, if you don't subsidize EVs, um, they're not, you know, they're not cheap enough for most people to buy. So you're going to have to subsidize them. Um, you know, there are obviously exceptions to that. I'm talking in generalities. There are lots of wealthy people, particularly in California, um, who they'll buy a, a Tesla even if there is no subsidy. But, you know, a lot of people, uh, I don't, you know, myself included, I'm resource constrained. You know, I'm not like, I don't have millions of dollars to just blow on whatever, you know, fun toy. Um, and so when I go out and buy a car, I'm concerned about how much it costs. And most people are that way. And so these subsidies really are very Im important um, ways to, uh, you know, ways to, to, to get people to, to buy EVs. Another question about the EVs. How do economists factor in some of the environmental impacts from the earlier parts of the supply chain? So looking at like the mining of the rare minerals that need to go in, some of those more environmental and also ethical issues, do those get weighed into those research? Not, not enough. The, th this is a really important point because right now, so we already talked about the, the pollution damages from fossil fuels. But when you think about going to batteries, we're unleashing a whole different suite of environmental and ethical concerns, uh, or mostly around the mining and processing of battery minerals um, and battery metals. So, um, and a lot of the damages from things like lithium mining and processing or from cobalt mining, you know, these aren't quantifiable in the same ways or, or, Economists have not yet figured out ways to quantify these damages as, uh, you know, as directly as they have with pollution damages, where, you know, when we talk about coal, how many people are killed from coal every year? Well, we can look at where the coal is. We can look at which way the wind's blowing. And we can, there are ways to estimate the number of lives lost from coal every year. But how do you put a, a, a dollar value on child labor in the Congo you know, 
where they're mining cobalt. Uh, that that's you know more of a ethical. You know, we I don't think we have a really great way of putting a dollar value on that. Same with the ecosystems. You know, around lithium uh, evaporation fields. You know, uh, so yeah, I think that that first of all, your your I think your point is we want to look at the entire supply chain when we think about the costs and the benefits. I think you're absolutely right about that. And right now we've got unpriced externalities, unpriced pollution damages or ethical concerns in both of these markets. Uh, and yeah, it's actually really, I, I, you know, a lot of people are really concerned about uh, the battery mining questions. I certainly am. And it's hard for me to even say, you know, are these damages, I, I kind of have an instinct that those damages are maybe less, like maybe that trade-off is one that I'm willing to make, you know, replacing fossil fuels with batteries that sure there's some local ecosystem damages, but we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So maybe it's worth it. I'm not sure that those, but you know, in economics, trying to estimate those, those trade-offs is, is what we do. And I think we're just very early in the stages of being able to do that. Yeah. If you had like a magic wand, it could suggest policy or maybe suggest a way for electric vehicles to become more adopted. Like we need to take on this technology, this policy to enact a wide scale change. What would be some of those things? Well, first of all, I don't think anyone should care about, except Elon Musk, about how many electric vehicles are out there. The the reason why we care about electric vehicles, or if you care about environmental outcomes, is because they are going to give us environmental benefits. They're going to reduce pollution. That's why most people care about it. But it's become almost a heuristic for that. People care about EV, EV adoption, you know, almost in and of itself now in ways that I think are, are not, you know, aligned necessarily with the underlying true goals, which ought to be decarbonization. So if what you care about is decarbonization, I think there are two big things that if I were, you know, I love the idea of having a wand. Uh, so <laughs> I would wave it towards two policies. One, a global price on carbon, or at least a price on carbon uh, in most places with a border adjustment tax for the places, for imports from the places that don't have a price on carbon. Because if you don't make it expensive to pollute, we're not going to reduce the amount of pollution. Um, and we can come back to that in, you know, in, in a minute if we want. But so number one, price on carbon, make it expensive to pollute. Number two is innovation subsidies. I think we really, we need to innovate to get out of this. Fossil fuels are just still so much better in so many ways than any alternative that we need new technologies to be able to get rid of fossil fuels. And that means innovation. That means research and development. And here I have in mind, you know, things like uh, carbon capture and sequestration, direct air capture. I mean, it would be great to just circumvent the entire collective action problem of global warming, by which I mean it's a global pollutant and a ton of CO2 that's emitted in the US has the same impact as a ton of CO2 that's emitted in China. Right? We don't care where it happens. Mm -hmm. That means there's a collective action problem. We need everybody in the world to get off of this, not just us. And so direct air capture actually allows us to circumvent that. Because if you take out a ton here in the US, that's taking out a ton everywhere. If we can do that really cheaply, which we can't quite yet, then that would be amazing. We should be investing in that. We need to be investing in energy storage technologies, batteries, hydrogen, ammonia for shipping, um, we really, you know, when you start looking at the heavier transportation uh, sectors, so, you know, long haul trucking, uh, but in particular, like maritime shipping, it's, we're probably not going to have electrification for these massive container ships out there, right? Uh, and, and um, you know, there we're going to probably go to something like ammonia or hydrogen that's very energy dense and, um, and storable and sustainable aviation fuel, other biofuels for things like uh, for um, aviation. You know, we need very energy dense fuels in order to fly planes and batteries are just too heavy. So to do that for, for long distances. And so we need to basically be investing in, in all of this R&D. And by the way, 
these two policy buckets are related. If you make it expensive to pollute carbon, then all of a sudden you will unleash the power of markets and capital going towards these alternatives, because now there's much more headroom for any alternatives. This is different than subsidizing particular technologies, right? It's when we subsidize particular technologies, say in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, for example, which I think did a pretty good job of choosing the the technologies that are most promising now, but there might be technologies that we don't know about, right? That we that we are foreclosing by choosing these winners today. I'm very concerned about that. So having a price on carbon and allowing the market to figure out where to invest, I think, is a very powerful um, and flexible way to approach this problem that just has so much uncertainty involved with it. Yeah, and you said we might revisit it, and I do want to revisit it. How do we price carbon? Would it be like a commodity market? Like, how how do we go about figuring that out? Yeah, so I mean, I think California's done a pretty good job of this. So in California, there's a cap and trade. Um, when you, there, there are good records about how much carbon uh, is being emitted uh, from, you know, various sources in the economy. Like when you have a gas, uh, you know, a gas uh, electric generator, then you know how much, uh, how much pollution is, is being emitted based on how much gas you're burning, right? And they have to pay, they have to buy permits to cover all the carbon there. And there are two good things about this. When you set the, when you set a cap, you know how much the maximum amount of pollution is going to be because you set that cap. And when you allow the par market participants to trade, what that does is it allocates, it's, it, the, the, the firms for whom it's very expensive to pollute or sorry, to abate, to, to reduce their pollution, they're going to be buying these permits from the market, from people or firms who can reduce their pollution inexpensively. So you're allocating pollution reduction efficiently across sources. That's the ideal way to do it. Um, and, you know, that's pretty standard economics right there. Like this has been around, this idea has been around for a long time. California has implemented this, although they've also done so much other stuff at the same time that the market is you know, the market's not really, um, how to say this, you've got all sorts of energy efficiency programs, other mandates that are uh, creating all sorts of emissions reductions. Um, and you're kind of layering on top of that, the uh, cap and trade market. So um, it, it creates kind of less continuity in the price of, of, the, of the permits. Um, which means, yeah, it's this. It's a little bit technical. My co-author across the er, across the hall, my colleague Jim Bushnell, wrote a paper on this a few years ago, and yeah, it's. I mean, ideally, we might not do all of the other stuff if we have a really good cap and trade system. Just let it work. Let it allocate resources as, let it allocate abatement efforts. You know, according to the prices. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty standard. They have it in Europe as well. Uh, and you know that the other way to do it is a carbon tax, and this is more. I would say the burden on on firms is more is higher there, because for every ton of carbon they're polluting, they have to write a check to the government, and so there's a lot of resistance to that. There's a lot of resistance to both of these actually. Like politically, neither of them is feasible federally in the U.S. at the moment. Why is that? Because I think the fossil fuel industry is a pretty powerful uh, interest group. And um, yeah, they, they've successfully lobbied. So back in 2010, there was a bill to have a national cap and trade, uh, the Waxman-Markey bill. And it almost passed. It passed one house, but not the other. And you know, since then, uh, basically, uh, the Republicans have decided that this is not something that they you know, they're actively resisting any efforts to, to implement policies like that. And the Democrats have pretty much raised the white flag on this. They've decided, okay, it's politically infeasible, so we're going to look at other stuff. Uh, unfortunately, all that other stuff is, is not going to be as effective, and it's going to be much more expensive. Do you think to combat that we need more government control or just a more educated public? <laughs> I would say a more educated public. I mean, I... Here's what I hope for. I think that there are lots of Republicans who care about the environment. And Republicans are the party of market-based solutions, of free market capitalism. And I think that if we are going to have 
a carbon price in the U.S., it will be because the Republicans, the Republican Party has decided this is a priority. We can stick it to the Democrats by uh, doing a better job at addressing this thing they really care about than they, you know, than they're doing. And I don't think they're anywhere close to doing that yet, but, uh, you know, that's the, that would be ideal. Yeah. We kind of got into politics and on that trend, talk about the government. You work at the Federal Reserve part-time, correct? That's right. Yeah. I'm half-time at, half-time. at the Dallas Fed right now. Could you expand on what your role is there at the Dallas Fed and how that's similar or different to your job as a professor? Yeah, sure. So the the Federal Reserve is essentially the bank to the banks in the U.S. It's the it's the financial reg, main financial regulator, and it sets monetary policy. And when it was created, you know, hundred years ago, uh, they wanted to distribute power uh, around the country. So there are twelve regional Feds, and Dallas is the Fed where the energy expertise in the Fed system lies. So that's why it's the Dallas Fed that I'm affiliated mm-hmm. with. Um, most of the other Feds don't really have people who study energy, but there's so much oil and gas in Texas uh, that that it makes sense for for it to be there. But because oil and gas is traditionally what has been the um, the biggest uh, economic concern, uh, the the expertise at the Fed are mostly oil and gas expertise, mm. and yet we're at the beginning of this really important transition towards other energy sources. And so they have been, uh, they hired me basically to, to uh, build their expertise around that area and help, you know, both, both in terms of, um, you know, developing, you know, uh, you know, doing research on these topics, which I'm already doing, but also helping to educate, uh, edu- educate people and make good decisions around economic policy uh, relating to the energy transition. So th- these are the things that, that, that they want me to do. Um, but you know, what are the different, like both at UC Davis and at the fed, my main job is research. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of the, you know, when I'm working on a paper studying, you know, electrification in the U S, uh, you know, both UC Davis and the Dallas fed are going to be interested in that paper. Could you talk about what it was like to be at the fed while we made witnessed a major financial crisis with Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse. It was fascinating to be there. I mean, I'm not a macroeconomist. I'm not a financial, you know, I'm not a monetary policy guy. I'm an applied microeconomist. So the, the, the tools that I use in my research are very different from the tools that macroeconomists use to think about these, uh, you know, issues like a financial crisis or even monetary policy transmission. So part of why I was excited to take the job was just to see, get, have a front row seat um, at this incredible time where there's inflation that's higher than it's been for 40 years and there's an energy war. Um, so it's, it's been fascinating. Um, I'm learning a ton. I feel like I'm back in school there. The economists there at the fed are, are brilliant and I'm learning incredible amounts from them, which, you know, once you've been a pr- professor for a while, like I study it, it's, it's in one sense, it's a broad thing that I study, but what I do is actually quite narrow. And so this has just blown that up. I've zoomed way out. I'm thinking about, you know, the way oil flows around the world, what the effect of the sanctions have been on Russia. Um, when it comes to the the banking crisis or the bank failures, um, there I'm purely an observer. Nobody's asking me my thoughts on these because they, you know, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, but it has been fascinating to see. And and yeah, the the Fed. Uh, uh, I have an incredible amount of respect for the institution which, um, you know, is just making decisions that, that affect all of our lives in fairly direct ways. Um, and just the integrity of the process that leads into to those decisions is really impressive to me. Um, yeah, I'm learning a lot. It's a lot of fun. Could you expand on some of those direct impacts on society? Because I don't think the general populace has a great understanding of how the Federal Reserve impacts them. Sure. Well, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate, which is to um, achieve 2% inflation while maximizing employment. And right now, because inflation is, is higher, it's, you know, depending on the measure right now, it's maybe four, four and a half, five percent 5%. Um, 
the Fed has a mandate to bring inflation down. And it does that primarily by raising interest rates. Mm. And uh, when you raise interest rates, it makes credit more expensive. So when you go to buy a car, buy a house, your, your loan terms are going to be more expensive. You're going to pay a higher interest rate. And that reduces the amount of demand, aggregate demand in the economy. Um, so, you know, it's as, as the Fed is doing that, it's essentially, you know, putting the brakes on the economy just a little bit, right? It, we want to slow down demand so that supply has, you know, enough time to catch up. Supply was disrupted profoundly during the pandemic. And, you know, I don't think we've completely gotten back to uh, the way that supply chains were before the pandemic. We might never. Supply chains might just always look, look different. Um, but as you as the Fed raises interest rates and the economy slows down, this is going to create unemployment. It's going to cause asset prices to fall. And these things have direct effects on people's well-being. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just a profound responsibility. And yet, you know, so you might say, well, why are they doing that then? You know, aren't those things bad? Well, yeah, but inflation's bad too, right? Inflation leads to the erosion of purchasing power and uncertainty in investments going forward, it, it's, 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 it really has, um, you know, negative effects that even, you know, are more profound than, uh, than what uh, high interest rates are going to have on the economy. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult balance, but it, it's been fascinating to, to, to see it up, up close. And then as an insider, how political is the Fed? Because it's not supposed to be. And there's some people who claim it's becoming more politicized. Do you view it remotely at all political? I, I, I don't really have a good answer for that question. First of all, I don't, I mean, to the extent I'm an insider, I'm just like barely an insider. <laughs> okay. I've only been, yeah. I've been there for less than a year. And I, I don't get the sense that, that the Fed is making uh, decisions for political reasons at all. I, I think that genuine, everything that I see is a genuine uh, attempt to follow through on, on this dual mandate that, that they have. And um, I haven't gotten the sense from, from the inside that, that, it's, that there's anything that's politically motivated. Very refreshing to hear. <laughs> and since markets are largely driven by consumers and consumer decisions, can you give us some advice on how we can be smart consumers? How to be smart consumers, especially I, environmentally, I guess is the caveat. I would say, don't worry about it. I honestly would say, don't worry about it. Like to the extent that you feel good, you know, being a vegan or driving an electric car, or whatever, recycling, like do it. But, you know, the issues that we're facing when it comes to the environment are so profound that we really need better policies and we need better technology. So let me, let me play it out here a little bit for you. Let's say that everybody in the U.S. decided to drive an electric car. Let's say we got to that point where we're at 100% electric here in the U.S. We've only begun to, to solve the climate change problem because the rest of the world has to also decarbonize. And as soon as the U.S. stops consuming oil, the price of oil is going to fall and all of a sudden, in developing countries that are, you know, you've got some consumer there who's now making $5,000 a year, which is, you know, much better than they were making a few years ago, they're going to be thinking, well, what, you know, how do I pay for my transportation? And all of a sudden, gasoline's way less expensive because the U.S. is not consuming as much of it. And they don't have a reliable electric grid, right? So, you know, what, what choice are they going to make there? I, you know... Whether or not I am making green decisions in my own life is not going to affect that problem. And what we need is people to zoom out, look at this as a very difficult uh, global problem where we need to work together, and we need to unleash as much of our productive energy as possible towards innovating and creating solutions that are going to work for that family in Nigeria that we don't want them to be burning a gasoline car 50 years from now, but we also want them to be able to prosper and have all these services that we have had for the last 150 years. So, um, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. I would say don't, you know, if I were to give people advice about, uh, about, you know, the decisions they make, it would be more about saving and, huh. you know, sleep and meditation. I don't know all <laughs> the podcasts that you were telling me about before this, um, you know, taking a long run view rather than being myopic and invest, you know, investing in your own human capital, mm-hmm. um, and not wasting, you know, time and money on, on, on kind of wasteful things. So what are the best meditation practices? <laughs> I, well, I can't say, I mean, I actually have had, had the uh, privilege of being able to do a lot of meditation. Um, and it's mostly been through uh, a Tibetan lineage um, uh, through the Shambhala organization, which has a, a center here in, in Davis. And we just do a bunch of shamatha, which is, you know, a breathing meditation where you place your mind on your breath and you kind of see when thoughts pop up. And when you recognize that a thought has come up, you, you know, just let go of it by going back to your breath. And this has been absolutely incredible for me because you just notice the same thoughts are going over and over. Like your mind is constantly going. The thoughts are kind of in a finite number of categories. It's, it might seem super chaotic at first, but then once you observe it enough, you see patterns. And then a wonderful relief is if you do this enough, when you're in the wild in the world and something happens like somebody cuts you off on the road you know you might notice this thought arise of anger or frustration or aggression in your mind before you slam on the horn or flipping the bird or whatever it is that your <laughs> instinct is <laughs> you know uh so you can kind of say oh that's interesting i just got very angry you know but i can just not be angry. I can just go back to my breath and, you know, I don't have to react to this person out in the world. And, you know, that pops up so many, in so many different ways. It's been, it's been a real gift uh, to me to be able to, to, to do that. It's, it's definitely changed my life. And I think, you know, my relationships benefit from it. It's yeah. amazing. Do you have any other advice for students broadly? Take economics. I think even if you are not interested in finance or business or economics, you should take economics because the tools really are, it will make you conversant in the world in a way that will be important no matter what you do. Um, and, and yeah, if you're interested enough in it, I would say major in economics and I would say major in economics and probably not man econ. I know you're both man econ students, right? I'm, that's one of my majors. Yeah. So I want to put a plug in for economics here. Which <laughs> we, so the ag econ department 20 years ago, 25 years ago, decided instead of being an agricultural and resource economics major, they're going to put the word managerial before it. And this has completely you know, seduced students into thinking that this agricultural economics you know, department is like a business degree. And, you know, in economics, we have world-leading scholars in immigration, international trade, public and labor and energy. We have a behavioral economist here who's incredible. Our major is going to teach you how to think. And, you know, once you become a CEO, you can hire someone to make your spreadsheets. Could you quickly plug DEEP and how students can get involved? Absolutely. So, um, we have just an incredible assembly of energy economists here at, at UC Davis. We've got three of us here in, in the economics department and several upstairs in Ag Econ and also one in environmental science and policy, Fran Moore, who's working at the White House now on the Council of Economic Advisors. And if you're interested in climate policy and environmental policy, I would encourage you to strongly consider studying energy. There are lots of people who, who, who are interested in environmental policy who come kind of through the environmental route. But really, if we want to reduce carbon emissions, we need to understand energy systems. We need to understand how to uh, produce energy in the economy to allow our activities to continue. And so there's really an, really an energy economics component to this. And when we, you know, at the Fed, we were trying to hire this year, there's just, there's way more demand for people, for energy economists than there is supply. 
that might also be true for environmental economists, but I think it's a little bit less so. So, you know, take our classes in deep, uh, take, you know, here in, in econ, take econ 125 with Jim Bushnell or econ 145 with Eric Muliger. Um, upstairs, I don't know the numbers, but they're incredible faculty up in ag econ. You've got, you know, Aaron Smith, Katrina Gesso, Kevin Novin, a couple of junior people. They're all teaching, you know, really interesting classes. You should take them. Wonderful. Great advice. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Robson. Thanks a lot, guys. This was a lot of fun. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.